Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. This is the podcast they call Space Nuts, and it usually comes in packets of two. Uh, Andrew Dunkley, that's me, and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. I'm always happy to join you in a packet of two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. I'm just trying to figure out what kind of nuts we are. Um, yeah, you you have the brain, so you're a walnut. <laughs> and I'm, I don't know. What's, I don't think you should analyse that what's too deep. small and meaningless in the nut family? <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, now, today we're going to be talking about uh, an asteroid, uh, which is the subject of a, um, a mission that NASA's putting together. Uh, and this asteroid, uh, as I understand it, is uh, a little bit different from others, and we'll get you to explain why. And we're looking at astronomical sign, not signs, sign. This is a new language or a new part of a language uh, where um, the International Astronomical Union has uh, created a sign language to help uh, the hard of hearing to learn more about astronomy, I gather. We'll find out about that. And Bradley. No, Bradley's not an astronomical body uh, and uh, not a spaceship or a planet. Uh, Bradley's a person who's asked us a couple of questions. So we'll get to those for you, Bradley. We don't know where you're from, but... We're sure you know who you are because there just really aren't that many Bradleys around. But first, Fred, let's uh, look at this psyche mission of NASA's to uh, to take a look at um, what is seemingly an unusual asteroid. Uh, it is a very unusual asteroid. And it's um, one w uh, which I hold in some affection, Andrew, because uh, when I was embarking on my master's uh, deep degree work, my topic was understanding asteroid orbits. And so I had to observe some asteroids and work out their orbits and calculate all that stuff. And it almost drove me mad, but it nevertheless was, was uh, interesting stuff. And the first uh, asteroid that I tried out all my new sparkling software that I'd written uh, on was Psyche. This one that uh, we're, we're talking about tonight, uh, sorry, today. Or this morning, or this evening, depending on when you when you when you're listening. Exactly. Uh, it's psyche. Uh, P S Y C H E. Uh, slightly psychological, I guess you could call it. Uh, it was the 16th asteroid to be discovered, so it's usually known as 16 Psyche, and 16 Psyche plays its part in my master's thesis at the University of St. Andrews. But Ooh. it's now known, which it certainly wasn't back then, this is hundreds of years ago, uh, we now know that Psyche is probably unique among the asteroid belt, because whereas most asteroids are pretty stony objects, they're rather rocky, this one is made almost entirely of metal. Mm. It's um, a nickel-iron asteroid. Uh, so it, it, it's composition you know could not could hardly be more different from your average asteroid uh, and that makes it of interest to science because we think that psyche 
was probably once the core of a planet that was being assembled within the solar system. Uh, so the way planets form is uh, you start off with a cloud of gas and dust and that collapses under its own gravity and at the middle you get a, a huge ball of hot gas which is, is like the sun, that's the star, but the dust uh, and the gas, the remnant gas, swirls into a disk around it, we call it a protoplanetary disk, and within that disk you start to get planets forming. And, and the, the bottom line is that bits of, you know, bits of dusty material stick together and eventually gravity pulls more and more of them together till you've got something the size of a uh, you know the size of a football field and then they stick together and you get something the size uh, of the moon um, you, you build what are called planetesimals these are sort of baby planets and then you get to a stage where the thing is big enough for its own gravity to pull it into a spherical shape and in doing that it heats the planet. Uh, it's probably hot anyway from the collisions of, of material. Uh, but all the heavier elements sink to the middle. And so you get the rocky stuff forms the mantle on the outside. Uh, you can probably hear banging, by the way, uh, which is the horse next door. Oh, the usual. That's right, because you live next door to a veterinarian. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah pretty, pretty metallic stuff going on there. The, 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 the heavy elements uh, sink to the middle. It's a process called uh, differentiation. And so what it means is that you form uh, these objects which have got a, a metallic core and then a rocky mantle over the top of it. And that's basically the structure of the Earth. And we think the other planets, certainly the other rocky planets. Mm -hmm. So um, at the middle of planets, typically, you're going to find a metallic core. But in the early history of the solar system, uh, planets were not in their well-behaved, you know, circular orbits that we have now. They were charging into one another in a fairly random fashion. Yeah, it was a fairly... Uh, cataclysmic time in the history of the universe that's right there was in fact um, about within the first six or seven hundred million years of the formation of the solar system that sounds like a long time but the solar system is a lot older than that mm. it's about 4.6 billion years old but within those first few hundred million years there was a, an episode called the late heavy bombardment. And that was a time when, you know, lots of things were charging around in the solar system. And planets not only uh, were being built, but they were also being demolished. The process is a kind of cyclic one. And so somewhere along the line, a big object hit this protoplanet, this, this thing that was going to turn into a planet, and knocked it to pieces. And one of the remnants of that is psyche, because the psyche is the remnant of the core of this, of this object that never made it to planethood. And that makes it very interesting uh, to planetary scientists. So the plan is to send this spacecraft, which will investigate the surface of psyche. We've no idea what a, a metallic uh, asteroid surface will be like. You know, it might be quite shiny and polished. It might be overlain with dust. It might have all kinds of bells and whistles on, on, on the surface rather than just the craters and, and mountains that we expect to find on a rocky asteroid. Um, so the spacecraft will be equipped with magnetometers and multispectral images and gamma ray spectrometers, neutron spectrometers, the whole remit of stuff that we take into space to investigate these other worlds as well, of course, as cameras and things of that sort. Um, 
The reason why we're talking about this today uh, is that the mission has actually had a bit of a boost because the original plan was that this mission would not be launched until uh, 2023 and was going to take, I think, something like six years to get to Psyche. But uh, the mission scientists have been uh, instructed by NASA to, to look at bringing it earlier. And in fact, they've got... Uh, a new plan, which involves a, a gravity assist from the planet Mars. That's when you fly by a planet and get a kick from it to boost your speed. It involves now a launch uh, in 2022, the northern summer of 2022, and a planned arrival at, uh, at Psyche, which, whose orbit is between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It's a, what we call a main belt asteroid. Uh, Mid-2026, so nine years' time, we will expect to see that. Actually, it's four years earlier than was planned. It was originally planned to get there in, in 2030. So for, for psyche enthusiasts like me, that's really great news because, um, well, I might last that long. You and I might still be talking about this stuff. I should, I should hope so, Fred. Yes, I do too. <laughs> the thing is, I, I would imagine that they would have already laid down their plans, done their calculations, worked out what they needed to work out, fuel loads, trajectories, escape velocity you know or whatever else uh for the for the original plan now now they've had to work it all out again surely that'd be um a mixture of joy and frustration uh probably that's right i think what the, the, a number of things though uh, have made people fairly joyous about this because uh one of the things about the new trajectory that uh the spacecraft will be on is uh that it doesn't go quite as close to the sun as was originally planned. Uh, it was going to pass, I, I don't know how many million kilometers away, but uh, to, close to the sun and close enough to give the mission scientists a bit of discomfort. Uh, so basically you need less heat protection now for the spacecraft. It doesn't need to have all the, all the reflective armoring that you would have needed before. And they'll save um, on 30 plus sunscreen, so that's good too. That's right, yeah. Actually, they, they use 50 plus sunscreen. Do they? For I'm told it doesn't make much difference. <laughs> no, that's right. It certainly doesn't if you plaster it on a spacecraft that you then <laughs> through the atmosphere. Mm. And, yeah. and I gather that uh, the window of opportunity to connect with Psyche is pretty wide because you don't often have these big variations in time when it comes to intercepting objects like this. It, it really depends on you know the relative positions between Psyche and the Earth when they're uh, you know, when their orbital um, orbital parameters all align. Uh, of course, that's one of the issues about human spaceflight to Mars, because there are only certain times when you can make the transfer between the Earth and Mars. Uh, and then when you get there, you've got to wait a year and a half or something before you can get back because of the, uh, the alignment that you need. So you're quite right. This is a one-way trip. Um, the spacecraft will wind up in orbit around Psyche, um, and and will basically um, you know spend the rest of its days there. There's no problem about bringing it back. It's certainly not going to bring back any sample return uh, from Psyche. All that we will learn about that weird asteroid will come from the equipment on board and the images and things of that sort. But it is, I think, it's pretty exciting stuff. It is, and and we may well then learn a bit more about what goes on inside our own planet uh yes yeah, we, we haven't seen our core we haven't exactly that's that's the whole nub of the issue that um the, the the metallic cores of planets are 
really, you know, you've got to work pretty hard to get any information about them at all. In fact, most of what we know about the, the core of the Earth comes from seismic observations where you get earthquakes and you watch the, the way the, the, the seismic waves are refracted and reflected within the Earth. That's what tells you what the Earth's structure's like, uh, plus a bit of modelling to try and understand what a planet would look like a hypothetical planet if you put it together. But to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, to investigate something firsthand is really remarkable and well yeah. worth doing. And until they develop a billion plus sunscreen, we won't be able to go down there. So we might as well just go to somewhere else in the solar yes. system and <laughs> look, at, look at something that's already been made earlier. Very good. All right, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Nuts. We'll we'll talk more about that story as it gets closer. I hope. Uh, and uh, you're with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about languages. Uh, everybody, uh, I think you and I have discussed before that the international language in astronomy is actually English. But uh, we're going to talk about a language now that isn't spoken so much as it is signed, a sign language specifically designed to help people uh, understand what's going on in astronomy. Is that right? The International Astronomical Union's behind this. That's correct. Uh, the, the, the governing body of world astronomy, the International Astronomical Union, uh, which I think has a membership of something like 10,000. So that's more or less the, world, the number of professional astronomers in the world. The headquarters are in Paris. Uh, it's a very august body. Uh, they do meet more than every August, though, but they're 
nevertheless, uh, you know, a, a very serious and, uh, and, and actually quite influential body. So, for example, what they do is they're responsible for the naming of celestial objects and things of that sort. Uh, it's the IAU that determines what names are given. And actually, they've recently loosened up a bit by inviting suggestions from, from the public at large for names of uh, asteroids and uh, dwarf planets and, and indeed stars. Um, so all that's part of their remit. But one of the things that I think is really a very, very useful thing for them to have done has just been announced. They had a press release out about this last week. And it's the first uh, list. It's a kind of international list of astronomical words in sign languages. So sign languages for uh, the hearing impaired, the IAU has recognized that there's a need for a kind of international sign language. Uh, and it actually comes about because of the early efforts of someone I know quite well, uh, a French astronomer by the name of Dominique Proust, who's um, actually related to the original Proust, <laughs> Marcel, um, in, a, in a distant way. But Dominique, um, he's, he works at the observatory in Meudon, which is kind of a suburb of Paris. Uh, many times we have visited his observatory on, on the tours that, uh, that I sometimes lead up to Europe. Uh, it's, um, it is uh, a a very, um, I think, a tribute to Dominique that he kicked off this in 2009, the International Year of Astronomy, by creating uh, a sign language uh, for astronomy or signing um, uh, in, in France. So it's in the French language. Uh, he Basically, what he did was put together uh, what you might call a, a dictionary of astronomy for the French sign language, it was called Hands in the Stars. And in fact, that's what they're calling the international one. So Dominique was instrumental in, in kicking this thing off. He had about 300 uh, signs, and they include, you know, planets, asteroids, galaxies, quasars, as well as some of the words that we use for describing the instruments that, that astronomers, it's the astronomers' stock in trade, things like telescopes, spectrographs, photometers, polarimeters, and all of this sort of thing. But then over the last year or so, uh, there's been a translation of Dominique Proust's dictionary into English. And now that, uh, that is being basically translated into other languages. So we've got a whole range of international languages with these inter now internationally recognized uh, signing symbols for astronomy. I think it's fantastic. It's, it's amazing. And I, yeah. I, I imagine what he's developed will be integrated into existing languages. So it will expand existing languages so that it includes astronomy as as uh, as an add-on if you like so that hearing impaired people are, are getting the benefits that we've just enjoyed because we can hear it's, we can, it's that's really right. quite that simple exactly mm. um the the um international astronomical union uh, on their announcement about this they say sign language is now officially practiced in almost every country but diverse heritages and different cultures independently develop specific signs to designate common objects or identical identical situations and then um 
Dominique himself makes a quote, which is a universal sign language is gradually being developed mainly to designate objects and situations relating to contemporary technology or events. Nevertheless, there will always be differences between signs in each country that need to be noted as countries have developed their own signs through time. So it's not a, it's not a trivial task to, you know, just invent signs for these uh, various things that we see in space. No, and I, I imagine one of the problems he may have faced was um, not confusing a sign that he created with one that already existed in an, in an, a language that was already being used that that could have happened it means something quite different that's right yeah so um, that would have been and i imagine in in sign language there would have already been words for things like planet and moon and sun and that kind of thing but he's he's gone to the um, i guess the extremities the the more intricate parts of astronomy the the, the areas that probably just weren't even considered to be represented. That, that's right. I'm sure that's right. Mm. It'll be technical. It With is... 300 words, you can, you can guess that some of those will be quite high, high level of technology. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's interesting. I, uh, I didn't know until I, I read, it, read up on it myself many years ago that there were different languages of sign. So you, you, uh, there's actually an American version of sign versus the Australian yes. English versions that's, versus that's French versus German versus... Uh, there are international languages in sign just like there are spoken languages of, uh, of um, many variations, uh, which is fascinating. And, and did you know, Fred, this is coming from my bucket of useless information, New Zealand was the first country to officially recognise sign as one of its national languages. I did not know that. And they, I take they, my have, off. they have three official languages in New Zealand, English, Maori and sign. sign. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I take my hat off to the Kiwis. They're pretty ahead of us in lots of ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were first to introduce the female vote too. Yeah, great um, stuff. Although I must look, I, I said something nice about them being Australian. I then have to counterpunch and say um, that we, you and I, right now are speaking on the anniversary of the discovery in New Zealand by a, uh, by a Dutchman uh, who just went straight past. <laughs> they only named it after a Dutch province. It wasn't even good enough to be named after a human. It was just named after dirt. <laughs> I've said enough. And just for the record, uh, Fred and I did that whole segment in sign. We You're did, listening. yes, absolutely. And, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'm, getting a, I'm getting a few signs from New Zealanders right now too, Fred, <laughs> interestingly enough. Anyway, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes, but it's so good that they're, uh, they're catering for an area that, um, that obviously would have as much interest in astronomy as, uh, as, as yeah. other people and uh, until now haven't been able to uh, take advantage of that. So it's very good news. Great stuff. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, Bradley. Bradley is a human. All we know about Bradley is that his name is Bradley. And he listens to uh, uh, Space Nuts, which I guess makes him slightly lesser than the average human. But anyway, Bradley, we appreciate it. And thank you for your questions. He's uh, got two questions for us. Fred will go in order of... Um, Bradley. One, I hear there's a radiation dome blocking us from going to Mars and the moon. Is this true or not? It is one or the other, Bradley. And thank you for asking the question. What's the story, Fred? So um, Bradley's um, certainly on the right track there. Um, I don't know that we'd call it a radiation dome. But uh, once you get above the Earth's atmosphere and away from the Earth's magnetic field, 
then you're in a very, very hostile regime. And of course, that, that's where any uh, interplanetary uh, travelers would be on their way to Mars. And indeed, they are if they're on their way to the moon as well. Uh, you're in a regime where the sun is spewing out these subatomic particles at quite high energies. Uh, that's called the solar wind. If you had a solar flare, this solar wind turns into a gale and you've got, uh, you know, quite uh, dangerous subatomic particle uh, fluxes going through space. And that's one reason why uh, the International Space Station has parts of it which are fairly well safeguarded from this. They're, they're kind of hardened areas uh, which would be able to withstand a solar flare rather better than, uh, than, than the normal areas. Uh, having said that, the International Space Station is reasonably well protected anyway by the Earth's magnetic field because it's within the, uh, the, the radiation belts of the Earth, within the, the magnetic envelope that surrounds the Earth. Uh, once you get outside that, then things look a, a lot tougher. And so the, um, uh, you know, a trip to, to the moon and even more so a trip to Mars is essentially subjecting you to uh, a, a, basically a radiation environment that is quite a lot worse than what we've got here on Earth. Uh, it's not just the solar wind. There are things called cosmic rays, which come from high, highly energetic processes in our galaxy and beyond. And so all these subatomic particles are kind of whizzing through your body uh, all the time. Now, for a three-day journey to the moon, which is what it took the Apollo astronauts, that is it's tractable. It's a radiation uh, level which um, you know is is one that can be uh, can be dealt with by the human body. It's not that great. It compares, I guess, with having a fair number of X-rays here on Earth. And um, of course, witness the fact that the returning Apollo astronauts, generally speaking, have lived pretty long lives. Um, and Buzz Aldrin's in his 90s now, I think, is uh, actually clicked over that uh, that mark. Yeah, and still um, a very, very active man. I, I actually did meet him once. He's, uh, he's uh, an amazing character. Uh, I think so too. I had the same pleasure once too. <laughs> uh, just let me work it out. I think they were 30 at the time of the uh, mission, so that makes him slightly less than... Uh, <laughs> Slightly less than, no, I think I've got that wrong. I think I'm calculating that wrong. I think that might be when they joined uh, NASA. Yeah. So I think, they were, late, I think they were pushing closer to the 40s, oh, yes. yeah, something yeah, like that. I right. Yeah, I shouldn't do these calculations live on Space Nuts. But, <laughs> hey, I uh, do it live on radio sometimes. It's really yes. a um, poison chalice, that one. <laughs> so, uh, um, so there is a radiation hazard. For a three-day journey to, to the moon and back, it's not that... Uh, it's not that arduous, but if you're going to Mars, then you really have to start thinking about hardening the, the structure of the spacecraft uh, to, um, you know, to mitigate the effects of the radiation. So it is, it's not something that blocks us from going to Mars and the moon, as Bradley suggests, but it is definitely something that needs consideration and needs pretty detailed cons consideration too, especially if, as I'm sure will happen, we end up, um, not you and me, Andrew, but we as a species, end up spending large amounts of time uh, on the moon, uh, which I think is likely to happen down the track. So the second question of Bradley's, you might want to read that too. I will. For the record, uh, Buzz Aldrin was 39 when, when he went he... to the moon. Okay, there you go. Mm. So he weren't far off. No. Weren't far off at all. And, and uh, just um, uh, something I've thought of uh, in you answering that first question, we, we've already sent 
probes and, and things to Mars. So it's not the trip he's talking about, it's the effect that he's he's asking about. So yes. um, that exposure to radiation. Uh, I watched a movie just the other day, a new sci-fi called Life, which is about the discovery of life on Mars. And uh, there was actually one situation where they were talking about one of the astronauts on the International Space Station who'd just racked up 400 and something days. And they were saying he'd reached the limit of his... Um, his yeah. exposure to radiation. Yeah. So, um, the, the, you know, they're talking about this kind of stuff in science fiction and it, it's actually real and one, yes, it one is. thing That's to be certainly concerned about and, you know, refer to earlier comment about billion plus um, sunscreen, you know. Yeah. They've got to invent <laughs> that soon and solve all these problems. Uh, just just a, a little postscript, a further postscript to that. Of course, on the moon or Mars, if, you, if you're planning to spend a lot of time there, then you can you can actually uh, you know bury burrow underground. There are natural caves on both those worlds. And that's, and they, they, that's something they've certainly been talking about in in the last six months or so because they've discovered huge lava um, yes. cubes on yeah. uh, on the moon where where you could easily protect yourself from um, radiation. So yeah, it is definitely something that uh, is being looked at seriously. So to question two from Bradley, when NASA first sent humans to the moon back in the late 60s, oh, funny that, uh, why haven't we been back? Is there a reason? Uh, a number of reasons, Bradley. And uh, I guess the main one is that um, putting humans on the moon was a huge endeavour in the 1960s. In fact, in many ways, it was ahead of its time. Uh, and the technology that was used to do that was, by, certainly by comparison with what we have today, fairly crude. Uh, but it was still very expensive. Uh, the figure that I have in my head, I think, is about 33 or 35 billion US dollars at the time. And that, of course, that would translate into a much higher price by today's, today's standards. Mm. Uh, but of course, the imperative to go to the moon was entirely political uh, because the Cold War was at its height. That's the, you know, the kind of political jostling between the United States of America and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies. And uh, there was a really big impetus to, to show uh, who could get to the moon first as being a technological achievement that would actually uh, stamp you as the as the leading technological nation in the world. And that's what um, really what what uh, the U.S. succeeded in doing. But the the political imperative to do that was so great that the amount of money, as I said, uh, was was actually extraordinary by the standards of the time, 30-odd billion dollars. Uh, there is another thing, though, about why we haven't been back there. Um, and this is, I think, to do, well, there's two, two factors to it. One is that we now know that with robotic spacecraft like Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, like Curiosity on Mars, like Mars Express, like Venus Express, all these fantastic robotic spacecraft that uh, you and I, Andrew, often talk about. Mm. Uh, that is such a great way of exploring the solar system and bringing back data that we would not be able to do without huge expenditure in putting humans uh, into these environments. And that's the, the thing. These days, because we are so much more risk-averse than we were back in the 1960s, um, there isn't the same political imperative, despite the, the, I think, relatively tense political situation in our world today. It's still not like it was in the Cold War. Trust me, I was there. I remember what it was like. <laughs> I remember too. Um, I was sort yeah. of in the last 
30 years of it. That, that's childhood. right. Yeah. And, and it was. It was a. It was a very sobering time to be uh, to be a youngster. In mm. fact, so um, that uh, political imperative is not there. We're more risk averse. We know we can do so much more by robotics. Uh, that that is why we haven't been back. But it's not to say that we won't go back again. And maybe in the relatively near future, there was a statement from. Uh, from President Trump just this week, which was all about urging NASA to bring forward their lunar exploration program for humans and uh, and with a view to using it as a stepping stone to Mars. And, and so of course, China is certainly pushing to get uh, yeah, people on Trump. the moon, definitely, and, it, and and the US looking at Mars. So uh, that's right. There on is the table. Yeah, there is there is another uh, there is an element once again of competition uh, about this. My hope, uh, and I think it's probably my guess too, is that eventually, uh, particularly for Mars, we'll find major international collaborations taking that forward, like the one on the International Space Station, which is really quite an extraordinary uh, feat of international uh, collaboration in a time when you wouldn't necessarily think it would be happening. And as was demonstrated in the science fiction movie, The Martian. (laughs) That was international go, cooperation great. as well. So they were trying to send a message even through that uh, platform. But, um, yeah, we will go back there. There's no doubt about it. And uh, yeah, But as you say, Fred, it can be a pretty dicey proposition. They'll, uh, they'll want to make sure they've got everything figured out and uh, yeah. make it as safe as possible because uh, Mars especially is not a, uh, a quick journey. It's, uh, it's a heck of a trip. It's not a cake when you get there, right? <laughs> no, no, it's a hostile planet. Yeah. Um, as much as we love it, and we just keep going back there and trying to learn more and more and more. But um, yeah, it'll be exciting though when they finally do. I hope we're around to see that. But um, it's not too far off. Uh, Fred, uh, thank you, Bradley, by the way, for your questions. And we do encourage questions, so please send them to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter um, page. We, we do love to hear from you, even if it's just a passing comment. Uh, always welcome. Fred, thank you so much. Um, always enjoyable. Good, good to talk to you again, as always, Andrew. And I think we'll be doing another one next week. One before- more before what? Xmas. And um, then we might have a little break, but we'll figure that out as we get closer. But uh, we'll we'll catch, uh, catch you very, very soon. Fred, thank you. Sounds great. Thanks. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And you've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, and uh, we thank you for that. And don't forget to tell your friends and um, yeah, keep in touch. We do really like that. Until next time, thank you for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.